Amen. Thank you, Kim, and thank you, Brent and Andrea. So grateful for the stories. Those are just a couple of the stories that the Lord is weaving right now in this body of Christ here at Cornerstone. And I just can't wait till next Sunday during the Sunday school hour to hear even more of what's happening out there in your hearts and your lives. And I look forward to gathering with you in that very way. As we think about the mission of God working through us to the nations, or we think about the mission of God working in us to transform us and to sanctify us, we come to a passage from uh, this little postcard epistle of Philemon that teaches us about the nature of God's work in reconciling us, both to Christ and to one another, And you can hear, even in the words of the Apostle Paul, I believe from this letter, a spirit of thanksgiving that pervades it all. And so we turn our attention to this letter, the letter of Philemon, beginning in verse 8 and extending to verse 16. This is God's word. Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what it is that's required... Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I am sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness may not be by compulsion, but of your own free will. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever." No longer as a slave, but more than a slave. As a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, having heard your word read now in the presence of all of your people, we give ourselves over to its instruction and we ask that in its exposition you would come now through the power of your Holy Spirit and you would take our darkened minds and hearts and you would flood them with the light of your word and that you would plant this word as a seed in the soil of our hearts, that it would grow to the glory and the fruit that would redound to your name throughout all of the earth. We want to be living ambassadors of the transformation that comes in the gospel for your glory's sake. Hear our hearts cry now and answer it as we approach your word from the letter of Philemon. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if any of you among us here this morning enjoy a good argument of persuasion, enjoy anyone who has a penchant for wordsmithing or poetry, and anyone who can speak with such 
fervor and with such earnestness uh, to where both the logic of its argument and its beauty in presentation becomes so persuasive in its power that it genuinely triumphs the hearts of the hearers, then you'd be a lover of the letter of Philemon. Because there is hardly a better example of what we might call gospel rhetoric in the Bible than this particular letter from the Apostle Paul. When you look at this letter of Philemon, you see Paul's heart on display. He sees a circumstance, a situation that we recounted together last week, but bears remembering this morning as we consider this word between Philemon, a master in Colossae, a man of some wealth, a businessman who's hosting the church in his house there in Colossae. And another character by the name of Onesimus, his slave, a slave who has run away and appears, as we will see next week from verse 18, that he has robbed him as a thief. But now, this Onesimus, having run into the Apostle Paul in Rome, has come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And as an act of his obedience to the call of Christ, he needs to make things right with Philemon, his master. And so Paul is sending him back to Colossae. He's got this letter in hand. And to his right is a fellow worker, a friend, Tychius. They've come together and they're in the presence of Philemon. And this letter, publicly given to the church, is being read. And Philemon is hearing the news of Onesimus' conversion for the very first time. Paul, as this story is unfolding, wants to highlight the radical nature of the gospel to bring a unity between those who are not reconciled. He wants us to know that it's not merely techniques of speech or, or postures of physique or or ways in which we hold our jaw, or anything else that we might look like as methodological or psychological tricks in order to get people to make peace with us. Paul doesn't put his confidence there. Paul puts his confidence in a message, a message that's linked to a person, a person who has bridged heaven and earth. Let it be known that if you can bridge heaven and earth, the great estrangement between God and man, that if that same person is with you by the power of the Holy Spirit, he can also bridge much lesser things. Even those conflicts between masters and slaves, between husbands and wives, between parents and children, between employers and employees, and any other kind of extended family conflicts that might be lurking behind Thanksgiving lunch this coming Thursday. Paul makes a loving appeal to this Philemon in order that Jesus might be praised. How does he do it? Well, let's look at verse 8 and see how he begins this appeal. He says, I am bold enough in Christ to commend to or to command you to do what is required. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. Paul says from the get-go, I want you to know 
Philemon that I am a master too. I have been endowed by God, commissioned as an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. I, along with 11 other men, have been given unique authority that's bestowed upon us alone as eyewitnesses of Jesus, commissioned of Jesus, to speak on the behalf of Jesus and with his authority. As many of you know, the Lord gave the apostolic office of those 12 men in the first century as a foundation stone for the church. They would become the means through which the scripture was written, which is why the apostolic office doesn't continue, but is retained within the pages of scripture. And it is why we today refer to the scripture as our only infallible rule for faith and practice. But at this point in time, the scripture is being written. I give you Philemon. I give you Paul's writing right here for the very first time being read in Colossae to deal with this very situation. And the Apostle Paul wants him to know, Philemon, listen, I could speak to you as an apostle. I could command you. I could just require you to do what it is that you ought to do. But I've chosen not to take that route. I've chosen to approach you with a loving appeal. I'm making of you a request. And I'm doing so on the basis of love. Now, maybe you ask yourself as you read through this letter, why did the Apostle Paul take that tact? Why did he go at it this way? Wouldn't it have been easier or quicker to get down to the business and just say, Philemon, do the right thing. I command you, receive Onesimus back. Welcome him as if he was me. Well, surely you know from the very foundation place the trickiness of commanding somebody to do something. It's tricky business whenever you decide to do that. People don't like it when you command them to do things. Some of you will know the story of uh, the young boy in Sunday school who was uh, running around the room during Bible time. He needed to sit down and to hear the, the, the lesson, but he wouldn't sit down. And the teacher continued to say, Johnny, sit down. And Johnny just kept doing laps around the room. Johnny, Johnny, sit down. And then finally, as we open up the Bible to begin the story, and Johnny pops up again to run around the room. Teacher finally, with with that teacher voice, Johnny, sit down. And Johnny sat down. And then the teacher said, Johnny, thank you for sitting down. And Johnny says, I'm standing up in my heart. You see, there's a... There's a catch-22 with commanding people. Uh, the fact of the matter is that when we command, we, we often draw up inside of the person in whom we're commanding the very nature of sin. It's called rebellion. You see, sin is, is not just doing something wrong in terms of external or formal obedience. Sin is a matter of a heart. It's a matter of rebellion. The Apostle Paul here isn't just interested in external uh, forming or obedience from Philemon. He wants to woo his heart. I don't want to command you at the risk of stirring up a rebellion within your own heart. Paul actually tells us in Romans chapter 5 that the law increases sin. You would think, well, that's not the case. The law was given in order to diminish sin. But what Paul was alluding to was how when the law comes, we fight back. We just don't like to be told what to do. 
The Apostle Paul is actually saying, I'd rather appeal to the heart of Philemon on the basis of love than to command Philemon to simply do what is right because I would love to see a more excellent way arise in the church of Colossae. Now, in doing that, in appealing to the heart of Philemon, he was also taking quite a risk. It's always possible that Philemon could choose not to do what the Apostle Paul is requesting. It's always possible that this loving appeal from the Apostle Paul would be, would be rejected by Philemon and he'd go do the wrong thing since he wasn't commanding him to do so. Uh, maybe you have a story like mine as my parents would regularly um, instruct me to say something along the lines of, Nate, you know, you really don't need to go outside and play with your friends tonight. You've got so much homework to do. You've got that huge project that's due tomorrow. You haven't even begun on it. You've completely procrastinated all week long. It's time for you to get down to business. I, you really should get your work done first and then, then go out and play. Now, Nate, I'm not telling you what you must do. I'm telling you that wisdom would dictate that the best decision for you to make would be to get your work done and then go play. Now, all Nate heard was, I'm not going to make you do your work. And the decision is yours. That's all I needed to go skipping out the front door to go play with my friends rather than to do the wise thing. Of course, my parents were trying to appeal to my heart, but it was a hard heart. It was hard to get there. And sometimes in allowing for the freedom to make different decisions, people wind up going directions that they really ought not to go. But here, the Apostle Paul is willing to take that risk. He's willing to say, because I know of who you are, Philemon. I know as we studied last week in verses 4 through 7 that your faith and love for the Lord Jesus Christ is great. I know that your care of the flock there in Colossae is significant. You have genuine love for the church. And so I have every reason to believe that the capital of the gospel that has been put in your heart can be leveraged with this loving appeal so that you not only would have to do, as it were, the command that I would issue, but you'd be compelled to do from love what wisdom would demand. The Apostle Paul is actually in this moment giving us a bit of wisdom with regards to peacemaking. You've been in the situation where you don't know what to say. You've been asked to try to reconcile a situation or you've been estranged with someone in your family or in your work. And you have, you've worried over it. You've fretted over it. Now the time has come. How is it that you begin to proceed in a situation like that? I want you to see what the Apostle Paul is doing here. The first thing the Apostle Paul is doing is he's preparing his communication in faith. That's the first thing he's doing. He's preparing his communication in faith. He's been praying for Philemon. He tells us that in verses 4 to 7. He knows the stories about the testimony of Philemon. He's been giving praise to God for that. He knows the story of Onesimus and his conversion and coming back to Philemon. Philemon doesn't know that yet. But Paul knows it and he says this is an amazing gospel opportunity that could transform the church there in Colossae and be a powerful witness for the, only the work of what the gospel could do. He knows that. He's been working toward it. He's been preparing in faith what it is he's going to say. And now in this letter he's doing the second thing. He's speaking the truth in love. 
He's speaking the truth in love. He's prepared in faith. Now he's speaking the truth in love. But here's the third thing that he's doing. He's letting the outcome be the Lord's. How many times in these situations do we just want to control all the variables? And we worry ourselves sick, hoping that we'll say the right thing and do the right thing and sit the right way and blink at the right times and smile but not too much in order that the person might be induced in some way, shape, or form to the graciousness of who we are. When in reality, God has called us to faithful preparation. He's called us to speak the truth, and he's called us to leave the outcomes with the Lord. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. And in so doing, he's showing us how to live the life of the reconciling faith of the gospel. So if this is the approach that he takes in the appeal, what's the content of the appeal? What does he actually say? Because in verse 10, he begins to get into the nature of why it is that he's writing. He says, I appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Now, I want you to get in Philemon's shoes for just a second. This is the first time in all the letter that the name Onesimus has been spoken. So if you're Philemon, you've just read, okay, greetings from the Apostle Paul, grace and peace to you, to Akipia, to Archippus, in the house. Okay, wonderful. I've been praying for your love and your faith for all the saints, and I'm so encouraged by your testimony. Wonderful. Now, I don't want to have to command you. What I'm really going to write to you is in a loving appeal. At this point, Philemon doesn't even know he's talking about yet. All of this is building up to like, okay, Paul, out with it. What, what is it? What is it? You don't want to command me. You're just coming to appeal. Oh, my. Does he know? Does he know? Does he know what's going on? You know? Oh, wait. Oh, this has to do with Onesimus. That good-for-nothing slave? This letter's about that. That's why he's here. He's brought it in Paul's writing on, on his behalf. What an incredible shock and potentially a disappointment when the Apostle Paul reads the name of Onesimus. He does not have sweet feelings rising up in him when he hears the word Onesimus. This is the guy who stole from him. This is the runaway slave who's left him in a lurch. In the first century, a slave would have been so important to a master that this likely had economic impact upon Philemon's business ventures and enterprises. This man has had a continuing negative effect on the life of Philemon more than less. But then it's the way in which Paul says it that should have turned in the heart of Philemon because he mentions, I have come to you through Onesimus, who has become my child in my imprisonment. He's not your slave, Philemon. Onesimus is now my child. Now when the Apostle Paul uses the language of my child, he's not talking about bloodlines and DNA. He's talking about spiritual lineage. He's saying Onesimus has come under the apostolic ministry of the gospel and he has been converted. He has come to know Jesus Christ. His faith is in Christ. His love is for the saints. He's numbered among the saints that you love now there in Colossae. It's the language that the Apostle Paul uses of Timothy and Titus and the church at Corinth and the church at Galatia. It's Paul's way of saying, the Onesimus that stands before you today, Philemon, is not the Onesimus that left you. 
He is a changed man. Now, if I were Philemon, it would be quite easy for me to go, yeah, sure he has. He was always good with words, that Onesimus character. I'm sure that he ran to you in Rome and now here you are greasing wheels for him to be able to get back in on the good thing he really had going here at my house. He probably learned it's hard for a slave to make his way in Rome by himself, especially when he is essentially a fugitive from a legal standpoint. And so now, undoubtedly, he wants the gravy train to continue with me. And now he's come back and he is actually leveraging the Apostle Paul to get the job done. I don't know if that was in Paul's mind, of course, when he wrote Philemon. But one thing we do know is that Paul doesn't merely say that Onesimus had a conversion experience. He said the right words. He, he assented to the five questions of church membership. We allowed him to get in on the inside. He says that he actually is not a Christian merely in word. Here's what he says. He's a Christian indeed. His life has changed. Uh, look at the way he puts it. Verse 11, formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. What is the Apostle Paul saying? He's saying this good-for-nothing slave, this one who has thieved and, and has neglected his calling and what it is that the Lord had given to him has left you, he's left you in a lurch. He is now who is, who is once useless, he has now become incredibly useful. Yeah, he's become so useful, the Apostle Paul says in verse 13, I wanted, I wanted him to stay with me. Like, I, I, to be quite honest, Philemon, I didn't, I didn't even want to send him back. I was compelled to send him back. But he'd been so helpful to me while I was in prison here in Rome uh, that I, I really wanted him to stay. So I'm sending him back to you because I don't want your kindness to me to be compelled. I want it to become out of the goodness of your heart, verses 13 and 14. I want you to, to love me in order to give uh, Onesimus back. So here's the deal. I would love for Onesimus to make peace with you, to be reconciled, any restitution that needs to be made. And then if it's okay with you, would you, would you, would you send him back to me? He's really useful in the work of ministry. Now, it doesn't come across very, very clear in, in the English, but Paul is, uh, Paul is rhetorically turning phrases. That, the language there, verse 11, that he's become useful is an interesting uh, term. It's actually the term Onesimus. Onesimus's name means useful. It means useful. In a turn of phrase, in a grand irony, if we might say so, Paul says, you remember Mr. Useful and how useless he was? Do you remember that? Do you remember the height of his uselessness, Mr. Useful? How he thieved and left and completely left you in a lurch? Mr. Useful, who was useless, is now growing into his name, praise be to God, through the conversion of Jesus Christ. He has now become a fellow partner and a worker with me in ministry. In other words, Philemon, this Onesimus that stands before you is not the Onesimus that left. He is a new creature in Christ. The old has passed away and the new has come. Now I wonder if Philemon, having heard all of these things, these mesmerizing events one after another, 
could have heard with an open heart Paul's instruction in the very next section. Notice the way he says it, because the Apostle Paul begins to focus on providence. He says, verse 15, For this perhaps, what's he speaking of? His departure. For this perhaps is what the Lord was up to. Why Why he was parted from you for a while was so that you might have him back forever. No longer as a slave, but much more than a slave, as a beloved brother. Philemon, if you can hear it, this Onesimus, this useless Mr. Useful, who has now been converted and is growing into his name, if you can look over all of the painful situation... How he in sin left you and thieved from you. How over the course of his quote-unquote ministry for you, he was useless. Now, as he sought to escape to Rome in order to gain freedom, he realized he couldn't outrun the reality of his conscience and his sin. He met with me in prison. We don't actually know how that happened. Could it be that he himself fell into prison from his criminal activity, it's very possible. And while he was there, God in his graciousness put him alongside the Apostle Paul. And it's in that moment that he met his real master, the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the master of the Lord Jesus Christ, he received grace and salvation for his sins. Could it have been that the fingerprints of God over this this terrible situation was this? That God, through the hound of heaven, through the Holy Spirit himself, ran after Onesimus as he sought for a freedom that was not free. And he caught him in the midst of a prison that must have felt very entrapped. And in the midst of that prison cell, he found a freedom that breaks outside the bars. He found the gospel of the Lord. Can you see it, Philemon? Can you see it that God is weaving you into this story just as he's woven Onesimus into this story, just as he's woven the church at Colossae in this story? Can't you see that God has crafted a beautifully mesmerizing story of grace? And the next twist in the story is you, Philemon. How will you respond to the grace that has been poured out in this prodigal slave who is coming home to you as a beloved brother in the Lord. You see the appeal of the Apostle Paul? Do you see the beauty of it? Do you see why I called it a gospel rhetoric or a savvy? The Apostle Paul in preparation and faith through his speaking and truth and love is now leading as it were to the crescendo of this moment as this letter is read in the presence of Philemon with Onesimus likely standing by with his friend Tychius. He was learning, Philemon was learning, just as we have to learn, the reality is that this particular conversion story of Onesimus's, well, is similar to all of our conversion stories. Philemon would have to learn that. And it's the only way that true peace could be found. I found myself yesterday imagining what might have Paul said to Onesimus when he shared with him the gospel there in the prison in Rome. How might he have pressed into his heart through the truth of the gospel? What angles would he have used? What categories would he have employed? As I thought about it, I couldn't help but think how important it would be for Onesimus to learn that his civil slavery 
wasn't worthy to be compared with his spiritual slavery. He thought it was bad in a civil way to be under the master Philemon, but did he know in a deeper and more spiritual way how terrible it is to be under the master of sin and the master of death? Surely the Apostle Paul appealed to the fact of the slavery of the sin of Onesimus that was deeper than any kind of slavery that Philemon had ever experienced. Indeed, it had a death hold upon Philemon's soul. And could Paul have described the present estrangement, the estrangement that that Onesimus must feel with Philemon now, his master having done him wrong, and how bad that estrangement must be, is not even worthy to be compared to the estrangement that he really has with Almighty God. The chasm that is more deep than any human being could ever be able to bridge. But in the midst of these kinds of revelations from the Apostle Paul speaking into the life of Onesimus, would not have Paul said, Christ has broke these bonds for you. He has broke the bonds of sin, for God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that you would become the righteousness of God in him. That he paid for the penalty of your sin on the cross. He broke the power of the sin in your life, and he's one day going to eradicate the presence of the sin all over the course of human existence. And, And Onesimus would say, how is this possible? How would he have broke the bond of sin? How would he free me from the depth of this spiritual slavery? And Paul would have responded by saying, by taking your estrangement on the cross. As the Lord Jesus Christ hung on the cross for all of his people, he cried out in that fateful moment, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, Onesimus, you cannot bridge that gap. Jesus, the perfect one, had to come in your place. He is the one who stands as the bridge between God and man, and he had to do what you couldn't do. He had to take on the estrangement that you had created by your sin. He had to take on the punishment that you had created by your sin. He had to be that for you in order to break the bonds so that you could live in freedom. Listen, Onesimus, do you know what you are today? If you are to trust in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. A word that has never been spoken of you and that might never be spoken of you. You are a citizen of a greater city that is yet to come, even greater than the Rome that you have sought to escape to. And you are greater than the slavery that brands you with regards to civil society, for you are a son of the living God. And you are a brother, even now, of Philemon. What an incredibly powerful gospel that is. Onesimus recognizing and realizing the extent for what it is that Christ has done to bring him into the kingdom of God. And now in this moment, friends, even if we just go back to the moment of the first century where this was first read, Onesimus there with Philemon as he reads the letter publicly in the midst of the church, this letter from the Apostle Paul, this was a huge moment for this church. And you have to believe that Onesimus wonders, how in the world is Philemon ever going to forgive me? How would that ever be possible? Why would a master forgive a slave when I'm actually under the death penalty for what it is that I've done? Much much more to have to receive me as a brother, which is what Paul suggests. This would have to happen in Philemon's heart. He is the master 
would have to realize that he, like Onesimus, has defrauded the master. All of his life he's been stealing the glory of Almighty God. All of his life in his sinfulness he's been perpetrating wickedness, iniquity, and trespass. All of his life, though a civilly labeled citizen, he was a defrauding servant in the spiritual sphere and he had no right to be able to stand before the Lord any more than Onesimus. But that his Savior, the Master, the one who is Lord over all, do you know what he did? He made himself nothing and took on the form of a servant. Jesus became a slave. The Master of all masters became a slave willingly to take those who are slaves and to make them masters and sons in the throne room of heaven. That message would have had to have been so powerfully affecting to the heart of Philemon that when he looked into the eyes of Onesimus, he didn't see a good-for-nothing forsaken slave. He saw a radically converted beloved brother in whom he shares the same testimony. The same testimony. And in every person in this room shares the same testimony if you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. For who among us lives in the Garden of Eden enjoying with perfection our sinlessness in fellowship with God? Not a one of us. All of us have parted for the far country of sin. And Jesus from the further country still has come to save us from it. And in the moment of this recognition, should this register on the heart of Philemon, you know what I believe they would sing if it had been read or written at the time? Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. You see, friends, when we begin to realize the power of this gospel and we begin to apply and see this gospel in everything that we do, you'll understand why the Apostle Paul said in Galatians 3, it's not slave nor free, it's not male nor female, it's not Jew nor Gentile, but all are one in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this is the heart of thanksgiving. This is the spirit of thanksgiving. This is the reality for which all thanks runs. Which is why you see God work in your life through our sister Kim and through our brother and sister Brent and Andrea. And you begin to see that they see the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And yes, does it take a long time? It takes all of us a long time. It takes a lifetime. But it's worth every step of it in the grace of Jesus as you walk in ever-increasing freedom of the gospel. So friends, this Thanksgiving, don't just make it about the superficial. See what the Lord has given. 
trace it to the depth of his gospel and share it from the heart of others so that we together can dwell in the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, I would ask you to do that. Genuinely, this Thanksgiving and entering into this holiday season as we will do, would you help us to see our lives by the light of the providence of God? Would you help us to to trace your hand in the midst of our lives? Showing us where it is that you are and what it is that you are, are doing. Would you help us to glimpse, as the Apostle Paul was seeking to do for Philemon, help him to see the story that God is weaving and how he's, weaving, how he's woven uh, Philemon into that story and that this moment is so important for the expansion of the kingdom. Uh, Lord, I don't know, only you know what's going on in the lives in here in this room, but the truth is all of us need to hear this message and we all have a way in which it needs to be applied. Lord, we probably won't do what it is we're supposed to do unless you woo us powerfully in the gospel to do it. And so we pray in faith and with confidence that you would now, through this word and through your powerful spirit, compel us unto thanksgiving by doing that which you've called us to do. We entrust this to you, and we know that you will accomplish your will, so we give you praise and thanks even ahead of time as we look for it in the days to come. We pray it all in the matchless name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing together.